the very first thing I have to do is I have to admit internally and externally that I'm an alcoholic, that I, I can't drink successfully. This is the source of all the problems in my life. The first step, if I'm going to be healed, is I've got to acknowledge what the problem is. So when you take that alcohol away from me, now what's my problem? I just solved it, right? I'm not drinking. I think that's when it starts. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12 step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride. Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Hello, ladies and gents. That was the voice of Mr. Bill C that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you're going to hear so much more from him in a moment regarding steps one, two, and three in Alcoholics Anonymous. As I have done many, many times up to this point, I said a little prayer before I began this introduction uh, that this podcast, uh, in this episode in particular, can somehow help the still-suffering alcoholic in all four corners of the world. I turned my phone on airplane mode so I uh, am not interrupted. I inhale a bit of essential oil. It's just something I do, and it helps me to clear my mind of any noise, if you will, and then I let her rip. And here we are. This is the first episode of 2020. Wait, wait, 2020. Is that what we're called? Yeah, 2020. We, ladies and gents, have entered a new decade. So, Happy New Year to everybody, or as some of my Spanish-speaking friends may say, Prospero Año. I hope I got that the right way. I know I have some people that correct me every once in a while, but the only reason I happen to know that little phrase right there is because of a the, the song, you know, that says, uh, Feliz Navidad y Prospero Año y Feliz Navidad. I think that's how it goes, and hopefully I'm pronouncing that the right way. You never can tell. But anyway, um, I'm glad you all are here. Uh, as a reminder, if anybody wants to subscribe to the podcast for free, uh, just text the word sober to 31996 and you will get a message there uh, telling you how to subscribe to the podcast itself. So, I have had many, many people ask me 
throughout the couple of years that this podcast has been in existence, they always say, hey, John M. That's what they say. Hey, John M. Very rarely do people actually say that. But nonetheless, uh, John M., how- you have so many episodes now, which, if they're a new listener, which one do I listen to first? Well, that's kind of like asking a parent, who is your favorite child? So what I did is I went ahead and published a list on our website. I say I, so let me explain how this really happens. With the help of my bride, Shannon, I came up with the idea of saying, why don't we do this? And then my beautiful wife, Shannon, did absolutely all the work that is involved with it. Okay, so I came up with this idea and I said, hey, could we publish on our website the top 10 listen to episodes throughout 2019, throughout 2019? And that's in terms of downloads, my friend. It's not, it's not me subjectively or anybody else writing it. I can just tell you that Listen to by you, the top 10 episodes are now on our website. If you just go to the website, www.soberspeak.com, and if you look at the, I think it's the top right-hand corner, it'll say 2019 top 10 uh, episodes. And uh, I actually sent out an email with this same info to our mailing list this week. And by the way, if you're not on the email list and you want to be, feel free, more than free, uh, to send me your email address to john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com, uh, or just go to the website, soberspeak.com, and there's a contact us tab. In fact, you know those websites when you go to them and you are on it for like three seconds and all of a sudden one of those annoying pop-ups covers the entire screen and says something like, well, on my uh, side it says uh, uh, experience, strength, and hope delivered right to your inbox, something like that. And then you put your email address in there and voila, next time uh, we send out an email, you get one. Well, I have one of those annoying pop-ups. So you can just go to the website and look at it there. All right. Now, and by the way, if you're not following me on Instagram, I'm at SoberSpeak, all one word. Now let's talk about Mr. Bill C. Steps one, two, and three. And, and you'll notice that on the beginning of this episode, we talk about his previous episode, which by the way, was number two, is number two listened all time uh, on SoberSpeak. Uh, and, and you can find it on that 2019 top 10 site. It is episode number 92. It's called Bill C. Practical Spirituality and Intimacy in Relationships. And if you haven't heard that, please do yourself a favor and go back and listen to that. And uh, and I know I have mentioned this before, um, but I didn't mention it on his episode last time. And this is the same Bill C. that I receive a daily email from, right? He doesn't charge for this. It's just something that he likes to send out. And uh, if you enjoyed this episode, or even if you don't, and you still want to get on his, uh, his uh, email list, you can send him an email Uh, to ask him to be on your list, and that'll be at Bill, B-I-L-L-C, as in Charlie, at kitchentableaa.com. That's Bill C at kitchentableaa.com, and I will put that on uh, this episode uh, just in case you forget. All right, Bill C, 
is from California, and he is going to address the first three steps in Alcoholics Anonymous. Subtopics uh, include, but are not limited to, emotional maturity, taking things personal, I can relate to that, and powerlessness. So, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, I present to you Mr. Bill C., and we will have some listener feedback at the end of this episode. Enjoy, Bill C. Hello, Mr. Bill C. Hey, Bill Alcoholic. All right, so you're alcoholic, and what may be your sobriety date, Mr. Bill C., the alcoholic? March 27th, 1985. That's a little while, huh? I'm very impressed by that. (laughs) As you should be. (laughs) Okay, so I had my friend Bill here on for an episode. Oh, gosh, I'm not looking at it. I never have these things in front of me, but it was an episode probably... 15, 20 episodes uh, back, and it is definitely one of the most listened episodes that I've had on Sober Speak. Um, It just went right up to the top very quickly, and uh, if you all want to look for it, uh, it's Bill C., uh, what do we call it, Bill, Spiritual, do you remember? Uh, Practical Spirituality. Thank you very much. Practical spirituality. I apologize. I should have that all in front of me, but I didn't. Uh, so it was called Practical Spirituality with Bill C. And you can go back and listen to that. But uh, we wanted to get together again. And uh, I uh, told Bill I wanted to go through the various steps with him uh, because uh, how eloquently uh, he shares about the steps and about uh, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. So we're going to go, we're going to start with step one. We'll see where we get. Uh, so Bill, I'm going to kind of turn it over to you and then I'll ask some questions. So let's go with step one. We admitted we were powerless over alcohol that our lives have become unmanageable. What comes to mind for you there? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is they told us that we were just powerless over alcohol because they didn't want us to run screaming down the street. Uh, After some years sober, I realized that I am utterly powerless over pretty much absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. It isn't just alcohol. And and I'm one of those guys that talks that you've been sober a while. It's not about not drinking anymore. It's about how do we get along? How are our relationships? What is our life like? Are we... Uh, do we have a purpose? What's really going on? Um, and my contention is that I believe that the the primary problem of any alcoholic in sobriety is that he or she is emotionally immature. That essentially we just don't get along very well. We're kind of like high school. If you if you look back, most of us started drinking and or using when we were in our teenage years. Those are the primary years of, of uh, maturing. Um, the lessons get handed out. You hit high school and you start having real relationships. Even in middle school, you, you know, boys and girls are figuring out how to get together. Um, we are confronted with authority figures all around us. Everybody's telling us what to do all the time in school and at home. They're trying to mold us and shape us, and, and we're resistant to that. High school kids, if they're not resistant, there's probably something wrong. I mean, they start pushing up against us, and everybody knows who they are. 
you can't be an alcoholic if you don't know who they are. There's always a they in there. And the problems in our life are centered around them. Those people trying to restrict our fun or tell us what to do, and we push back. Well, I've had the experience of raising kids. My two younger kids seem to be not alcoholic. They seem to be quote unquote normal. Um, you know, they have their little defects of character like any human being. Uh, nobody's perfect. But what happens is I watch them grow up and they start having relationships and they start having trouble. And they learn from the experience. They have a girlfriend and they skulk around on their girlfriend and they get caught and they get in trouble and they learn, boy, that's not a good thing when you start doing that. Or they're trying, they have two girlfriends at the same time. You know, and you watch this and it's kind of somewhat humorous. You watch it and and if you have a fairly decent relationship with them, those kids, they'll talk to you a little bit about it if they're not afraid of you. And uh, I never talked to my parents about anything. I don't know why that is. They weren't bad people. That was just my attitude about it. But with my younger kids, they would talk to me. They'd, I'd watch what was going on, and, and, and I watched them learn. And somewhere in their early 20s, mid-20s, they kind of evolve into who they're going to be. They're fairly balanced. It's not that they don't have problems, but they learn how to deal with them. Uh, a quick example is my daughter. Uh, uh, she hit middle school. She was always a good little girl, and she hit middle school, and, and she got all surly and angry, and, and she was failing a class. And we got notified by the teachers, and we never had to watch her with her homework. She was kind of self-motivated always. But here this was. And I looked at her, and I said, what's going on with you? And she goes, they're ruining my life with homework. And she was just all pissed off. And I thought, oh, this is my daughter. I, I relate to this. And now she's starting <laughs> to act like me. <laughs> and we sat down and talked about it. And what I told her was, I said, I always resisted authority and I never won. And I'm going to give you some advice. They have the power and they may very well be wrong. You might be right and they, they're wrong. But they have the power, and they will crush you with it. There is no justice. They will crush you. Now, if I were you, especially if you have a stupid teacher, they're really easy to manipulate. You just give them what they want, stroke their ego because they're insecure and burned out, and you can get what you want. But if you resist them, if your ego fights them and you want to overcome them, they will crush you. Mm -hmm. And she heard me. She heard me that lesson. And I said, there was a report that she had to do and she hadn't done it. And I said, well, let's do the report together. And she goes, well, what, what topic? And I said, why don't we write about how they're ruining your life with homework? And she smiled at me and she said, oh, can we do that? And I go, oh, absolutely. And we turned in that report and she got an A. And the teacher <laughs> wrote all kinds of comments. You can imagine that teacher, you know, seventh or eighth grade teacher reading these boring, dull reports, and all of a sudden she reads this one. And I'm sure she liked it and related to it. But my daughter learned a lesson. Now, today she's a school teacher. Oh, great. She's 38 years old, and she's got two kids. We spent Christmas with them, and she's a school teacher. Has she ever gotten a report that says, you're crushing my well, life? She's third grade, so she hasn't reached that point yet. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, I watched her grow up now. Back to us. 
I got thir- sober at 37 years old. I probably had the emotional development of a 16-year-old, and this kid was not an honor student. He's not the one that's mature beyond his years. This is the kid with a bit of a problem with authority. That's who came to you. And this process in the 34 years, almost 35 now that I've been sober, I've been growing up. And I behave bad. I'm the dad, sober. I'm the dad that got kicked off the soccer field for bad behavior. I'm the dad that's got his fingers through the chain link fence at the baseball field, screaming at the umpire with spit flying out of my mouth and escorted off the field. Sober. Sober. Um, At 14 years sober, I had a cop pull a gun on me because I berated him when he pulled me over to give me a ticket. And I told him he didn't have the right to insert himself into my life. I was perfectly capable of driving without his assistance. And maybe he should get a job that adds something to the society rather than detract from it. 14 years sober, an official AA guru. I made amends to that cop that day, and I haven't done it since. But when I got out of my truck to walk back to the motorcycle that he was on to give him to make my amends, he put, put his hand on his gun. And I had a moment of clarity. That's just plain old bad behavior. And you'll hear alcoholics say, you know, I'm living proof that you can stay angry and still be sober. Well, that's really something to shoot for, isn't it? (laughs) Is that what we're looking for? You you can't tell an alcoholic anything. If you tell him what to do, he'll just do the opposite thing, you know? Well, that might be cute when you're 14 or 15 years old. When you're 40, it's just stupid. And Bill, I got to tell you, that's one of the things that I love about talking with you is that you take some of these things that are accepted as, uh, I I don't want to call them wisdom or just sayings that you hear in AA. Excuses. Excuses Excuses for bad behavior. And you look at them and you say to yourself, is is that really true? Or is that just something that I've heard for a long time? And you come up with a different perspective on it. And I, like you, have been sober for a few 24 hours. And and it helps me to stay in the game when I can look at those things and think about how does this really apply to my life? Well, ultimately, ultimately what you realize in all of these situations is I don't like what's happening and I believe it needs to be adjusted. And I realize through experience, experientially, now that I'm awake, that I'm powerless over all this. And the other thing that happens is I take things personal that just aren't. That's like a teenager in high school. Everything's personal. They are the center of the universe. Everything is happening to them. And as parents, if we're not awake to this, we try to adjust them to get them to behave differently. When what's happening is they're, they're reacting appropriately for where they are in life. That sometime in the future, they're going to realize these things. There's, there's no use. And the way you learn how not to push against things is by pushing against it and fail. And what it says in our book is that self-reliance fails us. It fails us. And I'm a self-reliance guy. And we, we look out into the nature and we determine that some things are good and some things are bad. We look at, at something that's happening out there, maybe politically or anything. And we look at that and go, that's wrong. That's incorrect. You know, 
And my analogy to this is the lion eats the lamb. The, the lion comes across a lamb and it just eats it. That's what lions do to lambs. And we look at that and we say, that shouldn't happen. That's not fair. Cute little innocent lamb, big, mean, badass lion. You know, that's not right. And we sit and we talk to the lion and he isn't buying it. He goes, you know, he just eats the lamb. He doesn't listen to reason. So we create this thing called hope. And we talk about how hope is good. Hope is a problem. What hope is, is that you're looking at a situation that you're in right now, and you're saying that it's incorrect and it shouldn't be, and you can't change it. You're powerless over changing it. So you create hope, and you say, someday in the future, when things are right, because the present moment right now is incorrect, and it shouldn't be. There's some cosmic injustice that's occurring. occurring. So someday in the future, the lion will lay down with the lamb. And I submit to you that if that happens, that lamb is going to be nervous for eternity. (laughs) It is the nature of the lion to eat the lamb. There is no morality in nature. Things just are. We create the reality. We create, we add this to the equation. We look out there and we say, some stuff is incorrect. The way the universe operates is incorrect. It should not be. And I suffer because it never changes. And I understand that personally, I'm powerless, but I create a fantasy world that tells me that someday things will be correct because they're incorrect now. And I suffer because of that. My perception of the world around me is stuff is just wrong. And I will not let go of it. I believe it. A guy asked me one time early in sobriety, he says, Bill, have you ever considered the fact that you could be completely wrong? And I thought about that, and I went, no, I never consider that. When I think I'm right, I'm right. And I suffer because of that. So step one is huge. And it has a lot more import than I gave it credit for early on. The longer I'm sober, this concept of powerlessness is huge. The source of all the suffering in my life is my inability to accept things just exactly as they are. That's the source of all the suffering in my life. As time has gone on, this has exhibited more and more import in my life. Certainly over other people, I am powerless over other people. You know, I talk to other people and I say, you know, if you were a little bit different, the two of us would be a hell of a lot happier. And you just refuse to live your own life. And I suffer. I just hold on to that. This is called resentment. My inability to accept you. I went on retreat last weekend, and the guy that led the retreat did a wonderful job. And one of the things that he said that really affected me, that I really thought about, is that this idea of forgiveness, which is essentially step one, I'm powerless. And I have this resentment. And I need at some point, some people in my life, I need to forgive them for who they are. Well, one of the things he's saying, he says, what we do when we forgive people is, I will forgive you as long as you discontinue this behavior that's causing me to be angry at you, therefore I have to forgive you. Mm-hmm. So I'll forgive you, but don't ever do that to me again. Don't ever do what you do again, or I will take back my forgiveness. That's not forgiveness. That's conditional. What we need to do when we forgive people is we need to forgive them 
now for what the transgression that we perceive has occurred and any transgression in the future. In other words, I need to accept you just as you are. That whether it's internal or external, if I actually speak to you and talk about forgiving you, which is kind of condescending, really, when you think about it, you know, you're an awful human being, but I forgive you. You know, I mean, how does, how does that really work, at least verbally, towards another person? It usually happens in my heart. I need to, what's happening is I need to accept you just as you are, just the way you are. Even if you transgress on me again, I need to accept that that's the way it's going to be. Combined with that is this thing that we as a teenager does, we take stuff personal that simply isn't personal. We are incorrect at the outset. What happens is people are just doing what they do, and I happen to be in the blast radius. And the mistake I make is this person did this to me. No, they're just doing what they do. Could be anybody standing there. It was just my turn. Sometimes it's me that's exhibiting that behavior. Sometimes I'm the one that's the problem. But when you're the problem, boy, that's just delicious to me because you can then be the source of all the misery in my life because of the way you behave or the way the politicians behave or the way my employer behaves or whatever. You're the source of all the struggle in my life. And that's easy. It's delicious. And I can go to my noon meeting every day and share about it over and over and over and over again. And I can get a lot of confirmation for that where everybody comes around and says, yep, they're assholes. We, we got that. You and me both, buddy. And we're all in conjunction with it when we've got support around us for this. What is the source? It's suffering. I'm suffering. So powerlessness is a very deep and profound concept, and it infuses everything in my life. This is the very first step in this program for an obvious reason. The very first thing I have to do is I have to admit internally and externally that I'm an alcoholic that I, I can't drink successfully. This is the source of all the problems in my life. The first step, if I'm going to be healed, is I've got to acknowledge what the problem is. So when you take that alcohol away from me, now what's my problem? I just solved it, right? I'm not drinking. I think that's when it starts. Right. You know, I've taken away the medication. Now what am I, am I powerless over my wife? Clearly. You know, am I powerless over my employer? Am I powerless over the geopolitical situation in the world? <laughs> Clearly, because I don't like it and it doesn't change. I talk to, I get other people around me. We all agree that those guys are wrong and it doesn't change. And I suffer. Even if I want to change things, the first thing I have to do is I have to accept exactly, it is the, exactly the way it is. I can't b believe that it's going to be any different. I have to understand it in depth, even if I'm going to work towards some kind of change. What about the unmanageability piece? Well, I love when it says, you know, that my life became unmanageable. I don't remember when it was manageable. I mean, they allude to the fact that at one point everything was manageable and now it's not. You know, I don't think my life needs to be managed. I think it is simply unmanageable, and it doesn't require any management by me. What's happening is it's just unfolding right in front of me, and the next indicated thing usually is pretty obvious. You know, who's managing? I thought I was powerless. How could I possibly manage my life? 
mean, this is a great source of debate. You know, I mean, you'll hear people talk about how, well, I take care of this and God takes care of that other stuff. But, I, you know, like God can't supply me with everything. If, if I hide in a closet, he's not going to shove hot dogs through the keyhole and take it. You know, I mean, I get all that. I mean, it's obvious stuff, but true faith is not knowing and having that be okay. True faith is not really, is not knowing what the hell's going on and that's okay. You know, and my experience, I'm 72 years old and I'm sober all this time. And one thing that's become very clear to me, especially in the last few years, is that I've always been taken care of. And what do you mean by that? That I always get what I want? No. But I look back over my life, you know, I've had business ups and downs. I've had, I'm on, on my third marriage. We've been together 25 years and I'm keeping her. I'm getting tired, you know. <laughs> You know, I mean, she's a sober woman, you know, coming up on 30 years sober. We have a good life together. But I've had three marriages. You know, I've got four children. Two of them are up in Oregon. One of them doesn't talk to me at all. You know, I have a real life, a real live life, stuff that has happened to me. And a lot of it in the past seems like it was absolutely horrible. And as you look back over how things have unfolded, it could probably could not have happened any other way than it did. I mean, why would I contemplate how things could be different? Here's where they are now. And I believe that my life, my real life, started on March the 27th, 1985, when I was 37 years old. Now, for a long time, I had a lot of regret and remorse over the previous 20 years. And I would dwell on, boy, things could have been different if I wasn't alcoholic, or if this hadn't happened, or if that hadn't happened. Look at that horrible, bad decision. But it couldn't possibly have unfolded any other way. How could I possibly have a purpose in my life if I hadn't had such huge failures coming up to it? And every saint you ever read about was always a bad dude in the beginning. Then something happened. There was a shift, a sudden dramatic change. And that has happened to us in Alcoholics Anonymous. When you're in a room full of AA people, you're in a room full of people that are pretty conscious of the fact that their lives have been saved. That's a remarkable experience. We kind of take it for granted. But on March the 27th, 1985, everything changed. Everything changed in my life. What a remarkable experience. I don't think that could have happened unless I hadn't been this horrible, awful, drug-addicted alcoholic that spent time in mental institutions and absolutely destroyed his life. I mean, I don't think that would have ha I don't think I would have risen from the ashes if there weren't ashes to begin with. You know, so I can have a lot of regret and remorse, but what good is that going to do? We will be continuing our conversation with Bill C. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at SoberSpeak.com. There you will find approximately 110 plus other episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website if you wish to use it, if and only if the Spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this is a pod podcast funded by you, the listener. SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now I'm back to Mr. Bill C. And that is incredible that we can live this life. I call it like a, a hedonistic type of life. And be able to see things from that perspective and then have that particular date. And then with that date, we get to see things from a completely different perspective. 
Do you want to say anything else about step one or do you want to move on to step two? From well, I here? think this whole idea of the powerlessness, then the very next step says that we're going to be restored to sanity by this God thing. And if you're in a room of alcoholics, let's say there's a hundred of them, 75 of them probably have a problem with God. Even if they believe in God, having a problem with God doesn't mean you don't believe in it. You know, essentially, and I was one of those. I, I thought the whole idea of this God thing was really quite silly. It would it embar- I was felt embarrassed for you that you would talk about that in a public forum. It was just embarrassing, and and it really it, it disturbed me. And I, that, I'm not alone in that. A lot of people felt that way. And if you're devastated enough, you'll actually listen to these people that talk about it, even though you're embarrassed for them. You feel stupid being in the same room with people that talk like that. People that get up at the podium or sharing in a meeting and it's God this and God that. It just would make my skin crawl. And and uh, and I was at, and I had a sponsor that was one of those guys. He was one of those God people. Still is. Still is. It's just embarrassing. You know, and uh, we, I would get together with him and we would read the book together and he would talk to me about this stuff. And I would argue, you know, I mean, I, I, I just, so I went through this and here's my understanding. In my seeking, in my searching, which has been going on for all this time in my reading and sitting with different gurus and meditating and, and trying to, what the human being wants to do, I want to understand. I want to know the true path. I want to understand. That is a booby prize, the understanding. The experience of this thing is so overwhelming that the intellectual understanding is irrelevant. Because what happens in Alcoholics Anonymous, we actually experience it. And most of the time, we miss it completely. I mean, the simple fact of what happened to me on March the 27th, 85, what else do I need to know? Something touched me and my life completely changed. Now, in my reading, one of the things that have come up, one of my favorite guys is Alan Watts. And Alan Watts, Alan can get pretty deep. He had a bit of a drinking problem, which even brings me closer to him. And one of the things that he said in his book, The Wisdom of Insecurity, which is an interesting title, um, is he said that true faith is not knowing and having that be okay. Now, what I always believed, what faith was, is that you have a belief mechanism, a belief mechanism that maybe was given to you by someone else, maybe a religion, uh, maybe your parents, or you cobbled it together yourself, and you've picked a certain path, and you've put this belief mechanism together, and that you have faith that your belief mechanism is correct. Because there's other ones, there can only be one, right? There can only be one. So this is a confusing thing, and you got to pick the right one. God, you wouldn't want to believe in the wrong thing, you know. I mean, and usually most of this is centered around. I want things to go my way. A lot of religion will tell you that if you're good enough, then God will come to you. You have to live in a certain way, and then God will come to you and, and enter your life. And they, they apply all kinds of moralistic reasoning around this belief mechanism. Maybe it's a fear of death. So you create this hope thing that there will be this heaven and I will live forever and all of this. But you have a belief mechanism, whatever it might be, Hindu, Buddhist, 
Christian, whatever it is, you know, any number of things. And you have faith that this is correct. What Watts is saying is something much more powerful than that. That true faith, real faith, is not knowing, having no belief mechanism at all, and having that be okay. In other words, everything is absolutely as it should be all the time. Hmm. And you have faith that that's true. Now, in order to do that, you have to extract the morality out of it, or the judgment, essentially. The morality is what creates the judgment. This is good, that's bad. No, things just are. There is no morality in nature. Things just are. I think in Alcoholics Anonymous, eventually you come to some kind of non-dualistic way of looking at that. That the experience that I'm having is so profound when I stop and really look at it, that's the beauty of meditation, get into the present moment. In other words, you, you see things, you experience them rather than intellectually define them. And human nature, I want a definition. I want to understand. I want specific dogma that I can then follow, and then I'll be okay. And my experience, just my personal experience in life, it just doesn't work like that. I mean, I struggle with, as today, I struggle with that. My natural tendency is to judge things and determine the right and wrongness of it and then feel comfortable in that judgment that I'm correct. And that keeps being taken away from me all the time. Human interaction will take that away from you. In order to maintain it, you have to weed certain people out of your life. If you let some people get into your life, it screws up the judgments because they end up not being the way you thought they were when you get close to them. And so the second step is I need to be restored to sanity. What kind of sanity? You know, what kind of sanity are we talking about here? Well, certainly enough sanity not to drink and use. Certainly it's got to be that because look at the damage it's done in my life, just personal experience. You know, my, the way I was living was what would be defined as insane. I was just the way it was coming down. So I need to extract that out of my life, this thing. I need some kind of sanity, but also enough sanity to be able to glimpse the powerlessness, just get a taste of it. Not all this weird, airy-fairy kind of stuff, just the drugs and alcohol part. That's the beginning. So I need that kind of insanity. So logic dictates that this power that's going to restore me to sanity that we discussed has got to be a power greater than myself, that in and of myself, I can't fix me. You hear that a lot. And, and I think that there's a lot of more depth of truth to that than meets the eye, that I am controlled. I live in my ego, in the egoic mind. And it's pri one of its primary purposes is to separate me from you so that there can be some kind of judgment. There needs to be a subject-object. So this thinking thing that, that I think is me, I believe that it's me, it's telling me things. It's coming up with certain judgments. It's not the enemy. It's trying to help. It's just not very sharp. So it's, it's telling me stuff. And what it tells me about this God thing is, is that we don't need that. We have us. I don't need that, whatever that is. And what we essentially do is that we create a God and then don't believe in it. And that's an egoic structure. I create this God. I say that it's a Christian God. It's Jesus, or it's Hindu, or it's Buddha, or it's something. I, I create something, 
And I think about that, and then I don't believe in that. And my sponsor said, which a lot of sponsors say is, when you argue with them about this, he said to me, I don't believe in the God that you don't believe in either. And that's a very confusing statement because clearly there's only one God, right? There's only one. And you got to pick it. Mm. You got to come up with the the right one because all the others are wrong. That's the ego separating. So this leads us, if I can grasp this a little bit, that I need a power greater than myself without thinking about it. I need this. Now, in AA, what happens is we come here and we've run out of options, most of us. We'll talk about the gift of desperation. And essentially what the gift of desperation does for you is it shuts down your thinking process. You just, for whatever reason, you go along with what these people are telling you. You just do it. And that was certainly my story. The most spiritual thing that you'll hear in AA is get in the car. You know, well, where are we going? Well, what do you care? What's on your social calendar? It's that kind of thing. You just sort of get in the car. Mm-hmm. And I was meeting with this guy once a week, and he's reading the book with me, and I'm arguing, and he's giving me airtime so that I won't share about this in meetings. You know, that's part of the job of a sponsor is to listen to you, what you think your problems are so that you won't share about it in the meetings. The meetings are for recovery from alcoholism, not about how your day went or what you think about certain concepts, right? I mean, this is a spiritual path at its essence. The core of it is spiritual. It's not logical, you know, in the sense that we determine logic. I mean, we're sitting around with people that we wouldn't hang around with, listening to stuff that we don't believe, and we keep coming back. What the hell is that? It's an experience. It's a mind-changing, mind-bending, ego-deflating experience. This leads us into the third step. It says, okay, if you need if you need to be restored to sanity and this God thing, whatever it is, this power greater than yourself is going to do it, then you want to turn your life and will over to it. Well, it's a weird thing. They're telling they're leading us to believe that we actually have some say in the matter. Like, I'm going to turn my life and will over to clearly what already has it anyway. But they've given me this thing. Well, I'm I've been withholding myself from the totality of all things long enough. I'm going to acquiesce now and allow you to take me. Thank you very much. And we have these long, windy arguments about my will as compared to God's will, because you certainly, you have to flesh this out, right? You have to be able to, this is ego again, the separate, there's God and there's me. There's separation. They can't be the same thing. Clearly, I have a separate will from the power that drives the entire universe. Now, I'm pretty arrogant, but I'm drawing the line at certain things. There's no difference between my will and God's will. The next indicated thing is obvious. There is this illusion that I seem to be controlling things, that somehow I'm the author of my own reality. You know, if you stop and think about that, that's literally probably physically impossible. That I can't be separate from nature. I can't be separate from anything that exists in nature. I'm part of it. I am connected to it. If there is a God or this God thing, I can't possibly be standing outside the circle of the universe looking in. You know, Chuck Chamberlain used to draw the circle and all the everything existing inside the circle, then this little stick man outside the circle. Now, that's the alcoholic. That's me looking at the universe and judging it because I'm clearly not part of it. I mean, even the whole, the whole powerless, when you're a kid, all alcoholics, when they tell their story, talk about how long before they ever drank, they had this alcoholic thinking thing. They felt separate from. We apply this like it's some aspect of alcoholism, this feeling of separation. 
the ego presents itself at about two and a half years old. Prior to that, the kid thinks he's a parasite, essentially. He can't survive without them. But he gets to the point where he has a, an epiphany that when I cry, they come. So clearly, there's me and there's them. Now, growing up, all kids feel this separation, all of them. And we talk about alcoholic thinking as if there is such a thing, you know, that we take the human experience that everybody has and we say it's unique to alcoholics. I just don't believe that anymore. I don't think we're that different. I don't think we're that unique. I don't think there's that much of a separation. I have a problem that when I ingest alcohol, I don't know when I'm going to stop. It would behoove me not to do that anymore. Now, if that can be taken away from me, if that obsession to do it can be lifted so that I don't start and the craving doesn't stop, now that's worth looking at. What the hell is that? Let's look at that. What's going on? At this point in my life, I think that there, this idea that I'm special, and I'm sure as we continue this on, I'll talk about this more, has, is the source of most of the problems in my life, this idea that I'm separate and I'm unique and, and all of this, you know, certainly there is a self, a unique self of some sort, but the idea that we are independent of each other is really quite ridiculous. You know, I can't survive without you. You can't survive without me. When I'm a child, when I'm a baby, I physically can't survive. I'm not like a horse that stands up within minutes of its birth and nurses on the mother. You know, it isn't like that. I'm completely helpless. And as I get older, I can see myself returning to that condition. <laughs> so it would behoove me to be connected to my fellow man, right? As if I'm not already. So later when we talk about meditation and stuff, you can develop these skills, really, literally, of being able to watch yourself think. And you come to understand that you are not your thinking mind. So the third step is kind of cute in the sense that it, it allows us to, to believe that we actually have some say in the matter. I think what's happening in the third step is you just come to realize that you have everything you need. You just, AA essentially is a program of subtraction that takes away everything from you that's blocking you from seeing that you already have everything you need already, that there really is nothing missing. There's just a perception of reality that's a bit askew. Oh, this has been fabulous. You know, we're, I'm going to, uh, go ahead and, and close it there. But, you know, next time we get together, there's a lot more to be talked about regarding step three. We could start with step three again, uh, kind of flesh it out a little bit more, and then we can go into some of the other steps. I'm going to go ahead and close it out with page 164 of the big book. It says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows clear away the wreckage of your past, give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Bill, thanks so much for coming in. I sure do appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mr. Bill C. That was absolutely fantastic. Uh, we'll be continuing on with some of the other steps with Bill C. on some uh, upcoming uh, episodes, but uh, that was a great way to start the year. I wanted to start the year addressing steps one, two, and three, as I know there are people in all four corners of the world that have the boot of alcoholism on 
their neck and they can see no way out. And hopefully that was a message that it can help somebody somewhere out there in this land. Uh, if you want to send a message to, or if you want to get a message to Bill C uh, or to any of the other speakers, or you just want to communicate with me, send me an email to John, G-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. Now, on to a little bit of a listener de la feedback or feedback de la listener, however you want to say it. Anyway, um, this first letter email, I should say, that I have here. Oh, it broke my heart. Uh, Steve writes in and he says, John, I have been mostly trudging the road of happy destiny. At least I thought I was, but sadly, I have a story. I moved to Washington this year. That's where I'm from. And I thought the time was right to move back there. I even bought a house there. And there are some great AA meetings and a strong AA community in Washington. I spent, I spent parts of January, April, and all of July and half of September there, but decided that where I am in Kentucky is where I needed to be near my daughter and my grandsons, and with my girlfriend living life here. John, I messed up. When I got back to Kentucky in September, I got complacent and I stopped going to meetings. I listened to say to Sober Speak every week, but other than that, I didn't work my program. I felt like I had it ha handled and didn't need to hear that meeting stuff so often anymore. AA had fixed me, and I was fixed. This is a common story. Along about that November, I was even toying with the idea of having maybe one drink once in a while, in parentheses, cunning, baffling, and powerful, exclamation point, close parentheses. But it didn't. But I didn't, not once. Till December 2nd. The Monday after Thanksgiving, that's the day my son-in-law stupidly bought an off-the-street Oxycontin for his back pain, but it was really fentanyl. Oh, I've seen, I, I know what that is. I hope I'm pronouncing it right. Fent, fentanyl. And he died in his driveway, slumped over the steering wheel of his car. My daughter found him there. And I have spent every day since helping my daughter, she's 37, and the grandkids, the girl is 13, and the boy is 10, grieve and put their lives back together. It's been an unbelievable heart-rending as well as a bureaucratic and legal mess. In addition to the emotional crisis in each of them, of course, I am grieving as well. And in this tragedy, John, I found I was spiritually empty and had no reserves, and I drank. I drank for about two and a half weeks and then sad to say, and then said, I'm not going to let booze win, and now I'm back in the rooms of AA. I should have been getting a one-year chip next week. Instead, I am seven days sober today. I wrote in my sobriety journal in January that in Sober Speak episode number three, 
Clay D said that the way to relapse is first to let your spirituality go, and then you let your sanity go, and then your sobriety goes. I forgot that when I needed it the most. Now I know it from sad experience. But John, it's not all a bad story. I have a new sponsor. We talk daily. He holds me accountable. I'm back to my, quote, few simple steps, unquote. And I didn't drink yesterday. And with God's help, I will not drink today. I have a reprieve today, and I have no desire for alcohol. I'm here, John. I'm listening to you every week. I'm still telling everyone I know about Sober Speak, and I'm so glad that you are my meeting between meetings. Thanks, John. Signed, Steve. Steve, God bless you. God bless your family, your daughter, your grandkids. And I'm so sorry you had to experience that tragedy, but I'm glad that you are back on the right path. Be well, my friend. Godspeed to you. Angela writes in on the Instagram. She DM me on the Instagram. I sound so cool. I just like saying DM because it makes me sound like, I don't know. Do you think it makes me sound cool? Ah, just kidding. Anyway, Angela DMs me on La Instagram, and she says, Hey, John, I'm in Melbourne, Australia. Well, hello, Angela. And I came across your podcast on Luminary today. That's a podcast uh, listener thingy, thingy, Bob. Anyway, so I had to take a listen for a bit, and I hope to hear a lot more of you in the coming year. I'm 18 months sober, and it's an amazing journey of discovery. Uno dio at a time. Tiempo. She didn't. She says one day at a time, but I'm trying to get my Spanish done. I think it's uno uh, uh, dia. Uh, at a tiempo. Do I have that right? Uh, Something like that. Anyway, she says, this is my third attempt at living the 12-step way of life. I started OA in my 20s, the Al-Anon and ACOA in my 30s before drinking solidly through my 40s and most of my 50s. Well, we covered all the decades there. Wow, and that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of experience that you have there to pass on, Angela. I'm so glad. God willing, I'll surrender and stay sober as I definitely can't manage my life on my own. Regards, Angela D. Well, thank you, Angela. Thanks for writing in. I told her I was going to read this uh, on the podcast, and she said something like, fame at last. (laughs) Yes, Angela, you are now famous. Emma DMs me on the Instagram, and she says, John, listen to your podcast for the first time yesterday. I am five days sober. Oh, my goodness. Sounds like nothing, but it's massive to me. Thanks for helping me. That does not sound like nothing, Miss Emma. Five days is an eternity for people like you and me, and I'm so glad for you. Uh, just keep going to meetings. Uh, keep keep uh, Do all the right things. Uh, keep me posted. God bless you, and congratulations on your five days. By the time you hear this, hopefully it'll be like, I don't know, seven, eight days, something like that. Uh, but thanks for uh, contacting me. Lori 
writes in and she says, Lori, thank you, John. I really appreciate the podcast and appreciate all the hard work that must go in behind the scenes to get it posted. Well, thank you, Lori. You must have a background in radio just based on your style and professionalism. I don't get to hear about you much in these talks, so I'm just assuming, smiley face, blessings for all your love, for all blessings for all you love and hold dear in the new year, Lori. Well, that's a great way to phrase that. And I have zero experience, Miss Lori, in a radio, but I appreciate your compliment. But I do have a ton, a ton of experience in alcoholism. So I guess that qualifies me. Thanks so much for uh, writing in. Frazier writes in, and oh, I'm sure he gets that Frazier about the television show thing all the time. But anyway, he says, uh, after he wanted to write in and join the super secret Facebook group, as he said, and he, after he joined, he said, thank you. I found Sober Speak on iTunes. I've been sober since the age of 20 and have 27 years of sobriety. I've never had a legal drink. <laughs> well, good. Let's hope that let's hope that streak continues. I live in Roanoke, Virginia. Thank you for the meetings here. I listen to them on the way to the gym and when I go for long walks. And Frazier actually sent me a picture of his his sobriety chip. It's an unusual looking chip. It's got his sobriety date on it. And there's a tree on there. And I'm sure anyway, it just looked like a really special chip. I have not seen that particular chip before. So thank you for writing in with that, uh, Mr. Frazier. All right, ladies and gentlemen, once again, tune your ears toward the musical talents of Miss Wendy Child. Here is her beautiful rendition of Auld Lang Syne. God bless you. I love you guys. I'll talk to you more hopefully next week. As I always say, one week at a time. God bless. Should old acquaintance be for
and.